Michael Oren is a historian, New York Times bestselling author, former ambassador to the United States, and a former deputy minister in the last Knesset. Michael honored me with two conversations, one in my home in Jerusalem and one in his in Tel Aviv. We discussed Jewish-American-Israeli relations, the Kotel Agreement, peace with the Palestinians, his time as ambassador, and much more. I'm Barack Holman, and this is Jewish People and Ideas, a podcast of conversations with Jewish thought leaders about contemporary Jewish topics. Support for this episode of Jewish People and Ideas comes from the Mayanot Institute for Jewish Studies in Jerusalem, Israel, which provides a highly academic Judaic studies curriculum taught by a dynamic staff in a welcoming atmosphere. To learn more, go to mayanot.edu, M-A-Y-A-N-O-T dot E-D-U. This episode was recorded during two different conversations in two different locations. There were some technical issues with the recording, and you might hear some clicks and some background sounds. The content is great, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So you grew up with learning disabilities and being beaten up by kids. (laughs) Lovely childhood. Yeah. That was was the better parts of the childhood. That was the fun part. Yeah. And you've told about uh, scars on your knuckles from the fights you had. Uh huh. It's interesting. You also mentioned your father and your uncle. Yes. And how they were war heroes, and that on your cell phone you have pictures of survivors of concentration camps or or what not survivors, uh, mounds of bodies, mounds of bodies. And you had that picture in your head when kids were beating you up. Your father telling you go go back and fight again, and uh-huh. and you kind of have this fighting spirit that took you from learning disabilities to Princeton to a New York Times bestseller. Where did you find the self confidence to do that? Well, I, I I have no better explanation, Barack, than to say it has a lot to do with my my personal faith. And uh, you know, in Israeli politics, you're not allowed to talk about your personal faith. Right. As opposed to American politics, where you have to talk about your personal faith. Um, but I've, I've always been a very faithful person, and I like to think that I have a, an ability to communicate through prayer. And it's always been a, a source of, um, a tremendous source of strength for me. You know, even now that I'm transitioning out of politics into some more of the private realm, I, I'm always asking for that type of guidance. Um, I believe deeply that, that, the highest purpose of our presence here on earth is to serve and I'm uh, and willing to serve again and again and the question I always ask is okay how can I best serve so your relationship you, you mentioned your relationship with God mm-hmm. your relationship with God is one of service service to the Jewish people yes yes it does, that doesn't it's not that it's not self-interested I, you know I, I come with plenty of a personal quest too but over and all it, it, it's the question okay if, if I still have a, a function, I don't know whether I filled my historic function already during the years that I was in Washington. It's possible, um, but if I do, I'm, I'm interested in, in knowing about it, and I'm interested in, uh, and I'm here to to take up whatever task is assigned to me. I'd like to talk about the Obama years. What would you like to know? Your, your listeners cannot see my white hair, okay. and, and, I, and I don't have any white <laughs> Each hair. One of them were, I'm younger were, than you, and we're I don't well have deserved from the Obama years. Yes, six years you were the ambassador. I was a little bit less than five, just under five. How do you feel like you changed from before to after those years? You came in with a certain attitude. You left. How were you, how were you changed by those years? Well, I, I wasn't changed. I think maybe I was steeled by those years. Um, they were 
uh, among the most challenging, if not the most challenging years in the U.S.-Israel relationship, and not only in that bilateral relationship, but in Israel's relationship with the world. It um, This was an administration that came into office um, seeking to alter in a fundamental way the U.S.-Israel alliance as it existed uh, for uh, decades before, uh, changing core principles uh, in that alliance, among them, for example, the principle of no surprises. No daylight. Well, there's no daylight and also no, no surprises. No surprises meant that if the, if the United States was going to make a major pronouncement on Middle Eastern policy, that Israel would have some heads up, that we'd be able to see an actual draft of a speech before it was given. Um, in the Obama years, you know, beginning with the Cairo speech in June 2009, which had far-reaching consequences for Israel's security, uh, we had no, no heads up whatsoever, uh, nor did we ever get one. And ultimately, that administration would uh, conduct secret negotiations with Israel's number one enemy, uh, the country that seek to that sought to destroy us with Iran, without telling us. So, uh, what could you say about you know that alliance after that? You knew nothing about it at all. I the assumption was that there was a back channel that the the representatives of the Obama administration was sending to Israel to sort of to salve us, to to soothe us. Um, were not the main channel. There was a back channel. We didn't know how deep the back channel was. At least I didn't. And I was fortunate because the um, the publication of the, the agreement, the interim agreement on the Iran nuclear deal came out in November of 2013, literally two weeks after I had finished my, my term. And I was strongly of the opinion that if it had been published and I was still ambassador, that I would have resigned my position. Because after that uh, betrayal, which is what it was, a betrayal uh, in the worst sense, um, there's no way that I could go on and say that, you know, the Israel and, and the United States had an unbreakable, unshakable alliance, because obviously we didn't. You feel like you would be lying if you I said felt that. that. Listen, I always felt that I was, you know, I was putting the best possible face. In my, in my memoir of the period, um, Ally, I, 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 I paraphrase a 17th century English diplomat who said that uh, an ambassador is someone who is sent by his uh, ambassador is an honorable man who's sent by his government abroad to lie and um, and I uh, paraphrased and said no an ambassador is an honorable person who's sent abroad to lie not just for his own country but for two countries and uh, and I was always saying you know unbreakable unshakable as the Obama administration had and yes we can have a disagreement a different agreements between friends and we're honestly between friends but the um, the Iran nuclear deal took that argument to a uh, to an in, to in, to an indefensible level and there's no way that you can say this was a disagreement with friends when for two and a half years your friend is conducting negotiations behind your back with a country that seeks to destroy you the jewish community in america for the most part supported the deal they did they did a source of deep hurt and of immense damage to our relationship with American Jewry. And American Jews are insufficiently aware of the damage caused by that. Actually, even more damage than was caused by the majority of American Jews who opposed transferring the American embassy to Jerusalem or recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. The majority of American Jews also opposed that. But the Iran nuclear deal was not, it was not symbolic. It was not even spiritual. Uh, the Iran nuclear deal posed not one but multiple serious threats to Israel's security and possibly even to our existence. The Iran nuclear deal was about our children and our grandchildren. I personally came to the American Jewish community and said, I want you to know this deal jeopardizes. This deal will cost human lives. It will cost Jewish lives. You should know that. And for the most part, that cry, that's what it was, that cry went unheard. And that was deeply hurtful. 
It went unheard or they didn't want to hear it. Well, I've since been engaged in discussions with American Jewish leaders, and they have come back to me and said, listen, America, Israel didn't fulfill its role in explaining its its role position uh, sufficiently. And they may be right, Barack. They told me that they had been invited several times into the White House. They had been briefed regularly. And, and did we do that? Did we invite American Jewish leaders here to explain to them? To the best of my knowledge, when I was in Washington or elsewhere, perhaps no. But I know from my own perspective in the, in the articles that I wrote, including this book, including Ally, uh, which I rushed to publication in June of 2015 so that it would come out before the vote uh, on the Iran nuclear deal because I wanted to make that case. I wanted to press that case in the most emphatic way possible that that this deal endangered the Jewish state, you know, for which we had waited for for 2,000 years, for which so much uh, Jewish blood and treasure, not just Jewish blood and treasure, had been spilled had been spilled to and expanded to, to create and defend was being jeopardized. And um, I think today, you know, there's a, Democratic uh, candidates are running for for election in the United States. I don't know how many of them are are rallying behind that nuclear deal. I think there's a, a a growing awareness that the deal is fundamentally flawed, and any deal that enabled Iran to maintain the majority of its nuclear infrastructure that did not stop Iran from developing intercontinental ballistic missiles that have one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to carry a nuclear warhead. Any deal that did not insist on, on the cessation of Iran's role as the world's number one sponsor of terror. Any deal that did not relate to any way to Iran's nuclear blueprints, which have now been published, you know, after the Mossad revealed them in an archive in, in Tehran. Um, any deal that put a basically what's called a sunsets uh, clause that says after six, five, seven years, the deal would no longer restrain Iran. Any deal that provided Iran potentially with hundreds of billions of dollars that it wasn't going to spend on education or health, but to spend to, for, to conquer further areas in the Middle East, to further fund terror, any deal like that was insane, and I'll say it further, criminally insane. Hmm. It was intentional, you think? Sure, it was intentional. The Obama administration, intentional against Israel. No, no. I think the no. Obama administration, um, really in its first weeks in office, uh, sought to um, reset the relationship uh, with Iran. It proceeded under a number of, ass- of assumptions that proved to be th- totally erroneous, uh, the core of which was that um, this Iranian regime could be induced to, pr- to fulfill a more constructive role in the Middle East, that it could actually serve as a bridge between Sunni and Shiite Muslims, and I'm quoting the president on that. that no one can see my hand motion. Yes, I, I, that's, that's insanity. That is literally a quote. Um, that there was a moderate faction in this regime that had to be strengthened vis-a-vis the, the radicals. And keep in mind, it was during the, the administration of the moderates under Rouhani that Iran conquered wide swaths of the Middle East. Uh, the, the map of the Middle East before and after the nuclear deal is almost unrecognizable. The area is conquered and influenced by Iran. Uh, it was under that moderate leadership that Iran participated in the massacre of a half a million Syrians. Uh, that it supported terror to an unprecedented level around the world, including in Europe. This is under the moderates. Okay? And in Washington? The, that was the Saudis in Washington. It was also me. Yeah, they tried to assassinate me. But that was actually not under Rouhani, the previous guy. The Iranians, yeah, these are the moderates, uh, that they could somehow be induced. Uh, and you. And, and Yes, and me. And uh, But it's all completely and utterly false. And that they would use the money from the nuclear deal to to strengthen their society, to you know to strengthen their economy, all complete, completely false. 
and, and just the opposite. And uh, so even the the assumptions on which the nuclear deal was based were chimerical. They just didn't, and, and the, which would be okay for the United States, maybe that's a bad deal. As Donald Trump has said, it's the worst deal he's ever heard. But for us, it's not merely a bad deal. For us, it's the lives of our families. It's the very, it's the fundamental security of our state. And I used to always say, and I'll say it again, when it comes to Iran and the Iranian nuclear deal, Israel's margin for error is exactly zero. As a historian, and you wrote the book on the Six-Day War, which I read, by the way. I read two of your books. I read the Six-Day War book and Ally. Are oh, you missing the best one? What's the best one? For us, fantasy, faith, and power. Uh, you, Our faith and fantasy. You feel like that's the best of your books so far? I think it's the book that's closest to my heart. It's um, It was a, an impossible labor of uh, four and a half years to write. Um, I would say the best comprehensive history of American involvement in the Middle East from 1776 to the present. And I say it's the best because it's the only one. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's a hefty volume, about 600 pages, 200 pages of notes. Uh, no sleep for four and a half years to write this thing. But I adored it, and I adored it still. It just recently came out in Hebrew, and it's been very well-reviewed. I, I actually want to ask you a question, but you reminded me of something. So I had a, a conversation with Yossi, which is one of the episodes of the podcast, and also before that, Yossi Kleinalevi. And I told them how I enjoyed his last book, Letters to My Palestinian Neighbor, mm. much more than Like Dreamers. And I told them I felt like it felt it just flowed out of him, whereas Like Like Dreamers was... Work was really, like you said, four year, four and a half years. He spent 11 years in that book. That's <laughs> a lot. Yeah, he called yeah. it like, like nightmares. Right. <laughs> and I said to him, so why did you do that? And he said, Michael Oren said to me, stop writing books about yourself. You've got to write something about someone else. Right. And I'm telling you, Michael, the other way around. Right. The book that you wrote, Ally, was a fantastic book. I'm sure the other books will be great. Yeah. You need to write more books about yourself. You're a fascinating person with a fascinating story, and it's something to consider. Okay. All right. Uh, point taken. When's the last time Israel won a war? Israel won one of the great military victories of uh, the contemporary era in defeating the Second Intifada. And that book has not been written yet. But this was the first time that a democratic open society went up against terror. And we've seen that the United States has not won in Iraq, has not won in Afghanistan for a a state and certainly a democratic state to prevail against terror is extremely difficult. And not only did we beat terror in the second intifada, and we, this country came, we came very, very close to losing this country, bro. I don't know if you were here what back is then. That? I, I was here since close to losing this country. What does that mean? How do we lose the country? There was no foreign investment. There was no tourism. People wanted to leave. You couldn't go out to a restaurant. You couldn't go out to, you know, couldn't do anything. You, you got on a, a bus. People were, were, Terrified about putting their children on buses. Yeah, I went through that. Yeah, I was terrified to put my children on buses. We came close losing it. They, they they actually got us. They found a, a weak a weak link, uh, the terrorists, and um, they put everything into it. And not only did Israeli society cohere, we didn't unravel. We didn't. In fact, we actually got stronger through it. We prevailed over terror, and here's the true essence of the victory: we prevailed over terror without devastating the other side. Hmm. We didn't carpet bomb. Janine and Nablus and Hebron. That's and, what the Russians and Gaza. Would, that's what the Russians would have done. That's what they did in Chechnya. We didn't do that. And to my mind, as, an, as, a, as a military historian, that is just an extraordinary military achievement. I think there's a book called The Ghost Warriors that wrote about that. I have it in my pile of books okay. to read, but I haven't read it yet. It's uh, my, my son, uh, Yov, was wounded. Interesting. I'll tell you an interesting story. Not about me, about my son. He was in a special unit in the army. They would go out every night. 
you know, when I was in the army, I was in the paratroop because I would go out maybe once every three months on some big operation, and we thought we were we thought we were great. They'd go out every single night, at least once a night, and they'd go into these Arab neighborhoods and they they ferret out uh, you know Hamas terrorists, sometimes with uh, live fire, sometimes they get incinerated since they wouldn't get to surrender. But one night they had a, a terrorist surrounded in in a house, and they called for him to surrender, and he wouldn't surrender. And so they brought in a sniper who put one bullet through the house, just as sort of a warning shot. In a crazy coincidence, the bullet went through a wall, went through a cabinet, went through a door, hit the terrorist and killed the terrorist. And my son and his unit were devastated, devastated by having killed this terrorist by accident. By accident. I sat around all night, basically in depression. The next day, my next day, my son came to me. We sat in the, uh, interesting, we sat in the Cafe Hillo in Jerusalem. And he said, I says to me, Abba, I've, I've never before doubted the justice of our cause before last night. And I said to him, you know, Yoav is his name. I said, Yoav, think about if the, sh- if, the, if the situation was reversed. If you were in that house and the terrorists were surrounding you, they wouldn't have given you nor your family a second to surrender. They would have gone in there and killed you. And if they had killed you, they wouldn't be sitting there depressed about it. They'd be sitting there celebrating about it. That's the justness of our cause. Uh, several months after that, Cafe Hillel was blown up and eight people were killed. Dr. David Appleton. His daughter was getting married the next day. That uh, hill I was right beneath my office at the Shalem Center at the time. We spent all night there. And about two months after that, my son Yov was sent into another house in Hebron to get another uh, terrorist out. The terrorist hid behind his 10 children and shot over their heads. Uh, my son and another soldier went in to get the kids out. Hmm. And while evacuating the children, he was hit by two bullets. Now, he's fine today. That was the story of the Second Intifada. Pretty crazy. No. It's pretty crazy. And that's not still going on now? No, we, we've learned a tremendous amount. We still have terror. Mm. And the, the terror has a different function. than terror then was literally designed to take us down. Um, and as I said earlier, it, it came damn close. It may be, certainly more than the, than, than the Yom Kippur War, maybe more than 1967, not maybe more than 1948, but that was the war that came closest to achieving our enemy's goal, which was our destruction. Okay, I have a question about American Jewry. Yes. Why should Israel matter to American Jews? Well, first of all, Israel should marry to Jews because this is uh, the realization of a of a millennial dream for the Jewish people. We are the, I believe, we are the beginning uh, of the redemptive process. I believe that we are a source of pride for for American Jews. I think that American Jews are far more secure because of the existence of the state of Israel. Even today, with Israel increasingly becoming a more divisive issue, and that. Uh, American Jews, if they pause and look at this country, at its extraordinary achievements, at the environment in which we have thrived in spite of all the challenges, um, Israeli democracy, the rebirth of the Hebrew language, Israeli technology, have to admit to themselves that, that to not recognize the miracle of all this would be, would render us guilty of probably the worst crime, which is to be, to be ungrateful. So you have in America the most secure, educated, financially successful, influential diaspora community ever in Jewish history. Mm -hmm. And they've raised this last generation as probably the most Jewishly illiterate generation, maybe in all of Jewish history. How does that happen? It seems like the opposite you would expect. I think that my generation was more Jewishly illiterate, to tell you the truth. I mean, really? I, I read my bar mitzvah and transliteration in a, uh, in a conservative synagogue. And today I go to conservative synagogues and reform synagogues. And the kids really know Hebrew and they know Hebrew quite well. Uh, Jewish education has actually improved significantly in the liberal American, uh, Jewish movements. Um, what is different is the level of assimilation, uh, which is rampant today and very rare during my period. Uh, intermarriage was very rare during my period. Uh, growing up. And even the sense of community is dwindling. Uh, the, the notion that, that 
Jews should marry Jews, that they should pay a membership due for, to be part of a synagogue. It, these are embattled notions uh, throughout much of American Jewry. And you have to actually, I, I gave a speech once as ambassador at a, at a, at a reconstruction of synagogue. And I'll never forget this, Baraka. Before I get up there, the rabbi was a wonderful rabbi, a woman said to me, whatever you do, do not talk about peoplehood, do not talk about intermarriage, and do not talk about obligations. I'll never forget this. Do not talk about obligations. No salt, no sugar, no fat. Like five easy pieces, right? What's left to talk hold, about? Hold the chicken, hold the, uh, the white bread. If you can't talk to an American Jewish organization uh, or an uh, audience about peoplehood, about being part of the people, talking about Israel. So you don't want me to talk about Israel either. <laughs> I was the ambassador. Not talk about the need for Jews to marry Jews and have Jewish families, Jewish continuity. To not talk about obligations. What do, what should we be doing as Jews? What 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 does our our faith and our tradition obligate us to do? To me, was to render anything I said vacuous, meaningless. And in fact, interesting enough, I was never again. I was never invited back to that synagogue. <laughs> You're kind of describing what what I what I meant when I said that it's a Jewishly illiterate generation. People don't know why to marry a Jew. Which is a whole separate question. Why That's not illiteracy. Jewish? That is that is ignorance. It's different. In other words, you can speak Hebrew very well. Mm-hmm. You can read from the Torah. Sure. The question is, do you have, can you answer the question, why be Jewish? I think it's easier. That's, that's not illiteracy. That's something else. I think, I think a lot of Jews in America know that they're Jewish, feel that they're Jewish, even though they don't express it in any way. They don't really know what it means to live a Jewish life, but they know that they're Jews. Why marry a Jew is a whole separate thing. They're really why, the, why is it important to have Jewish children? Yeah, the, that, the, my question is now why have children at all? Because one of the more ex, 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 surprising statistics uh, relating to assimilation in, among American Jews is that the biggest cause of the demographic implosion uh, among American Jews is not intermarriage. It's not raising your children not necessarily Jewish, the biggest cause is non-marriage. So if there's, there's no value in, in marrying and creating a family, uh, which is a core Jewish principle, then you are facing a challenge. It's not about illiteracy. It's about something else. It's, 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 a, it's a breakdown of a certain type of value. I want to talk a little bit more about the split between American Jews and Israeli Jews and how they view Jewish sovereignty and the traumas that we've experienced connected to our perception of Israel and what it is. I love the resp- I love having responsibility. I think the responsibility of, of for having for sovereignty for Jewish sovereignty is is first of all besides being a great privilege is 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 miraculous in itself. And um, for that generation, for those people, it was not. And I think there's probably a paper to be written about um, about trauma and politics because, for example, for that generation of American Jews, 1973-1982 was the trauma. Okay. Israel is capable of being surprised and overwhelmed and having hundreds and hundreds of soldiers killed. Israel's capable of laying siege to an Amer- to a Arab city, a capital. Who would have thought? We're the good guys. We don't do this stuff. We always win. For Israelis, that same trauma was September of 2000. The Intifada? The breakout of the second Intifada. Because it came on the heels of a full offer by President Clinton, Ehud Barak, to Yasser Arafat of a Palestinian state in Gaza, mm-hmm. half of Jerusalem, 95.6% of the West Bank. Okay. They turned it down, but he didn't just turn it down. He turned it down with violence. He turned it down, Arafat turned it down with a, a wave of terror that killed a thousand Israelis, many of them not far from where we're sitting. Sure, I lived through it. Horrible. It was actually the darkest, I think, except for the Yom Kippur, probably the darkest period in, uh, in our history. And by the way, one of the greatest military victories. 
um, military figure. But history, you mean Jewish history or the state of Israel's history? State of Israel's history. Yeah. Um, But for many Israeli leftist intellectuals, that was the trauma. Because in one month, they realized that the conflict here was not about 67. The conflict was about 48. Did they realize? Many of them. Not all of them. I can give some names. People understood that it wasn't about giving back this piece of territory or that piece of territory. It's about us. And the Jewish state could, could contract into Dizengoff Street. It wasn't going to be acceptable. And how do American views, American Jews, they, they have the view that we, if we just gave the Palestinians whatever they asked for, then they wouldn't have any problem accepting the state of Israel. Then the state of Israel would be closer to perfection. Those show me a living, Palestinian that would agree with that supposition. Yeah, show I'm me saying, a Palestinian. Don't show me an Israeli. Over here, we know better. Yeah. When you're living in America, you're disconnected. So Israel is an interest. It's, a, it's an alert on your phone. But it's but I not think if, if, reality. If, if, if I can, I'm going to sound rather Klein Halevian now, but because um, he's good at the, making these type of um, observations, that while in Israel we didn't appreciate the American Jewish trauma of 1973 to 1982, in America, among American Jews, they did not appreciate the trauma of September 19, uh, September 2000. And also the withdrawal they didn't, they didn't from Gaza. Hmm? The withdrawal from Gaza. It's part of the same process, though, Barack. Because that's what we they gave asked up a piece of territory. Said, we gave them a state, give Gaza, and, and we got we got rockets. Peace. We got rockets. We didn't not, not only did we not get peace, we got war, and that's that's a big difference. It's one thing that with Egypt, we got a piece, a kind of a piece, not a piece like you understand it. Right. With Jordan, all right, we we gave up a I lot for call that it peace. It's not war, but it's not war. So there's a big difference between not peace and war. With Gaza, with Lebanon, the withdrawals, the twin withdrawals, um, we didn't get not peace. We got war. And that's profoundly traumatic for Israeli society. Uh, right, because we expected, we expected that we, if we give them what they want, mm-hmm. we'd get in return what, what everyone promised us. We did. I'll, I'll tell you one of the difficulties I have with, um, particularly with Europeans, because I deal a lot with, um, um, I deal a lot with European uh, diplomats and parliamentarians. And, um, I have to explain to them that in contrast to Europe, where the youth are left wing, the youth in Israel are right wing. Because of the Palestinians' response. Because, because of those bombings. You can't convince them that Gaza. giving up territory is going to give them peace. They of know course. Di- they, they, they know different. They're not stupid. They're smart. And this is, this is, Europeans are always taken aback by this thing. They cannot, they can't really? wrap around their heads that there's a youth that's right wing and doesn't believe in peace. That's because our youth has, they've all lost their friends. They've all lost family members. You, you can't convince them. What did you learn in your six hours of negotiations with the Palestinians? I heard you were on a negotiating team for six hours, you said? Last, it was the last round of negotiations. And with you the learned more in that than 30 years of studying the Middle East? I would say but more than that in six years of university, certainly. And that was this. I learned that, um, that this conflict is actually not, certainly on the Palestinian side, it's not about territory. It's not even about Jerusalem. It's about identity. And it was it, it, the, the, the realization sunk in thanks to a remark made by one of the Palestinian negotiators. That forgive me, will go unnamed. Um, yeah, what did he say? Though? He says, you want us to recognize you as the Jewish state, but by doing that, you're asking us to negate our identity. They don't have an identity without hating Israel? Is we wake up in the morning and we're Jews, we're Israelis, not because we're not Palestinians. And um, they wake up in the morning and their identity is deeply, deeply in, in engaged, embedded in negating our identity. And they have claims going back to the Canaanites 10,000 years 
They say they have a Palestinian culture. Where is it? What what are the positive components? So there was an article in the New York Times, and you can't accuse the New York Times of being anti-Palestinian. It's now about two years ago about the opening of the palace, the the, the Museum of Palestinian Culture in Ramallah. Ah, so there you go. Okay, so it's an expensive building. You look at it. You, I, you know, I, your listeners can can type this into their browsers and get it. And what was it? they had a, an opening ceremony? You know, August opening ceremony. There was only one rub. And that is that the museum was empty. The question is, what are the positive components of Palestinian society that are not linked to denying us? Even the, and this is going back to the 30s, even the um, the symbols of Palestinian nationalism are borrowed. Now, if you look over the weekend, we were bombing last week over in Gaza, and you had um, Ismail Haniya, the, the head of the political wing of Hamas, coming out on the rubble of his headquarters that we had just demolished. And what does he do? He gives a peace sign. Or victory, victory sign. sign, yeah. Is that that comes out of? I mean, the origins of that have to come out of the Battle of Agincourt in 1415. Okay, where what's that? I've has to do with it. British archers, uh-huh. and the French used to capture British archers in the middle of and cut off one of their fingers like and to show this means right. you have two fingers. Right. Okay, but that, okay, so the origins of this are in a different place, and then and then Churchill took it to a different place in World War Two. What does the word mean in Arabic? Victory. What, what does the V mean? Is there's nothing authentic about that symbol? You know, another prominent symbol in, in certainly Palestinian art, such as it is, is is is, is the dove of peace. So dove peace is not a it's not a it's not a Palestinian symbol. It's not an Islamic symbol. These are borrowed symbols. He was and saying that that's his Palestinian identity when he's standing on the rubble. I'm still here. Yes, oh, it's, and, and that's that is what powerful. Defines me. Well, we're going to get off topic, but I in in government, I among other responsibilities, I was in charge of the humanitarian situation in Gaza. And I spent a long time uh, with the Shabak, with our security people. And one of the lessons that they taught me that I had to internalize, and this is going to shock you too, is that every time we bomb them, every time we leave Gaza devastated, they view it as a victory. And they actually showed me a picture of Ismail Haniyeh standing on a, the rubble of another building giving the V so sign. Why? What, what does that mean? And they asked me, what, what do you see when you see that? picture and I said well I see defeat and they said no it's victory because every time we try to destroy them and they survive that's a victory and they believe Hamas believes it's winning mm-hmm. Hamas believes slowly slowly incrementally it's winning that unless you internalize that you cannot truly understand the situation in Gaza they have no food they have no water they right. have no anything insane. no future and they are victorious okay I'm going to leave that. I want to get back to the Kotel for a second. Please. Let's get back to the Kotel. Always a good place to go. So you were involved in negotiating the Kotel deal. About two and a half years, yeah. And it fell apart for political reasons. did. There is an egalitarian section at the Kotel that's open 24 hours. Right. You don't have to go through security to get there. Mm -hmm. Why are liberal Jews in America upset that the Kotel deal didn't work out? We may need another two hours just for this because there are different groups involved with the this. The short version. short version, you know, the women of the wall, but there's orthodox women of the wall, there's conservative reform. Give me like the around. bird's eye view of it. The bird's eye view is this, and that is that um, as uh, the cabinet secretary of the Israeli government explained to me once, that American Jews have to understand that the form of Judaism practiced in the state of Israel, the mainstream form of Judaism is orthodox Judaism, whereas the mainstream form of Judaism in the United States is, is reform and conservative Judaism, liberal Judaism. So right. There's a big difference right there. Mm-hmm. And that... Um, in the Kotel specifically, is one of many holy sites in the Jeru- in Jerusalem and elsewhere around which there are status quo agreements. There's sta- I, I was, in another iteration, I was Yitzhak Rabin's advisor on church affairs. 
and I was in charge of the Holy Sepulcher. Really? You, you, the Kotel is, is child's play compared to the Holy Sepulcher. Sure. You have, you know, eight churches competing for one space, but there's a status quo agreement. And if it's not maintained, that will become a firestorm. Okay? So you have to understand that there's security issues here. We're not even getting, getting get into whether the Jordanians would even let us establish an egalitarian prayer right, platform. Forget about the Jordanians. Whether the archaeologists will let us. Lots of oppositions. But to understand that, 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 that. Why is that not enough? What's there right now? Because in the Kotel arrangement, not the one I negotiated. I negotiated the egalitarian section. The one that exists right but now. The, but the agreement that was eventually uh, proposed to the government and approved by the government had two other articles in it that I would not have supported. One was, and again, I'm going to try to keep this as short as I can. Yeah. One was for a unified entrance to the Kotel area, to the plaza. So there wouldn't be two different entrances. One to the... I mean, traditional the hotel security. went to the egalitarian. Not for security. It was, it was a symbolic measure. In other words, we're saying this is one hotel with one entrance. Men, women, egalitarian. They didn't want that. They wanted one entrance for everybody. Okay. Two was a joint committee, uh, which would then be comprised of uh, representatives of Reform and Conservative Judy, along with the Jewish Agency, along with the Municipality of Jerusalem, along with uh, the rabbi of the hotel, what he on the screen, that would supervise the plaza. It was those two articles of the agreement that the Haredim opposed most strenuously. Why? For a reason which I think in strange way was justified. Why? Because the egalitarian prayer issue is about prayer. Okay. But the joint entrance and particularly the joint committee was about power and about recognition. Now, recognition. I believe that the state of Israel should recognize the reform and conservative movement. I think I, I called in the New York Times in a major article after the Pittsburgh massacre. I called on the state of Israel to live up to its obligations under the nationality law and but to recognize them I'll, I can go into that more deeply but um, but it changed the nature of the agreement from one that was about prayer to one that was about power and once you go down the road of power you have to talk about money you have to talk about kashrut you have to talk about conversion you have to talk about mikvahs you got to talk about many many things once you talk about recognition and power and I did I and, so and, the, and the Haredim understood that these two uh, articles in the agreement had changed the nature of the agreement and I would have preferred to focus right out only on egalitarian prayer. Why is recognition so important? Well, for me, I think that for the uh, for the liberal movements, I think that the fact that these that these movements have given so much to to Israel, including the, the so it, have and, Christians. And, and I don't think to the same degree. I mean, you look at any campus in this country, any hospital, any ambulance has got the names of liberal American Jews for the most part emblazoned on them. They have supported us in in politics. I've seen it up close. Um, but beyond that, there but is not a with the Iran deal. No, they did not. That's that's a very painful issue. But here, it's it's this: if we are indeed the nation state of the Jewish people, and we are the nation state of the Jewish people, irrespective of how they practice or not practice their Judaism. But if you are a member of the Jewish people, this is your nation state. In the way, I don't know, if you're Japanese, still living in the United States, Japan represents your no, certain so nation state. It is different because you were born a Jew, but you, you can be a Jew without believing in God or practicing any Judaism. And now you're talking about what's the Judaism you're practicing. Or not. Or not. But the nation state of the Jewish people is for Jews, Jewish not necessarily the religion that they practice. It is for the Jewish nation. It's peoplehood. It's predicated. So this country is predicated on, on peoplehood. We're a nation with a religion. A religion that, that people practice differently. Japanese don't, don't have a religion by being Japanese. They do, but okay, but it's not as important to them. Shinto, you know, uh, they do have a national religion. But um, the the big difference between Japan and Israel, they're the closest example to Israel in the world, by the way. The oh, big yeah. Difference, yeah, the big difference is that, you know, you can wake up as a Christian in the United States and Long Island and decide to be Jewish 
goes through a process and Israel becomes your nation state. You cannot wake up in Long Island and decide to become Japanese. That's right. The big difference. Okay. So, um, but as long as that is the case, we should be the nation state of the Jewish people and we should be the nation state of the Jewish people irrespective of how they practice or don't practice. And I believe we are. Already, we are, but we should we should be reaching out and not and not alienating because it's also it makes sense economically, as I said, certainly strategically. I always say to liberal American Jewish leaders that when they come here, don't speak Jewish, speak Israeli. What's Israeli? I know I know what Israeli is actually because of our mutual friend who says there was a war between the Jews and the Israelis, and the <laughs> Jews won. <laughs> That's true too. It's, it's very clever. But yeah, it, it, you understand the point. Amos Oz said it. Allah Shalom said that to, to the Haredim, we tried to destroy you, we we failed. <laughs> the fact matters, you were stronger than we blunt. are. It just says we tried to destroy you, we failed. And in that way, the Zionist secular project is not successful in certain ways. So. What are you hopeful about? I'm hopeful about just about anything. I, I think. I think to. To be in this country, to be a Jew in the 21st century is, is to be hopeful. It's not to be Pollyannish. It's not to be blind. But to see this, this particular moment is a moment of opportunity. That doesn't mean, you know, of course, opportunity is the, the flip side of crisis and we're going to have crisis. And I believe that we are on the age, we're on the, on the verge of a, of a, of a major conflict, perhaps every bit as big, if not bigger than the Yom Kippur War. With? With Iran, Hezbollah, Hamas, Islamic Jihad. And when I say Iran, that's Iran. That's not Iran and Iran. It's Iran and Iraq, Iran and Yemen, Iran and Syria, Iran and Lebanon. It, 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 a very complex, difficult war. You know, we face the challenges of assimilation. We face the challenges of divisions within the society. On the other hand, all, all the challenges we faced also give us opportunities, give us opportunities to bring us together in ways that perhaps would not have been possible otherwise, um, to remind us of what we have, to deepen the sense of, of gratitude. And it always comes back to gratitude, that nothing should be taken for granted. And it's a problem because we, we have a young generation now that, um, you know, that doesn't remember the Yosefs of our, of our, of our nightmares, which are you know, the Holocaust, even the Six-Day War, they don't remember this. Okay? They don't know what it was like for those three weeks before the Six-Day War. They don't remember. Hope. I'm concluding now almost a decade, close to a decade of uh, government service this time around, including many other years of government service. And uh, again, that feeling of service is, I think, incomparable. And it's it, the, the transition out of that type of service, is, is, it has its challenges. But uh, in one way, I'll, I'll remain very much committed. I'm committed to advancing Israeli um, technology and cutting-edge technology. I think that Israel will not only be the, the, forger, the forger of the 21st century, Israel in many ways will change the human condition over the next century, for, much for the better. But on a more sort of quote unquote mundane level, um, preparing to write my next book. It's a book that I have contracted with 10 years ago with a major publishing house in the United States. And it's the book on Israel's war of independence. This is to my mind, one of the most inspiring, astonishing stories in all of human history. Never mind Jewish history. Yeah. It's an incredible story. It, it's, it's beyond. And you take a country, you take a people that, you know, almost three years to the date after the end of World War II. The end of the Holocaust, declare the state in their homeland against every possible odd, not even all odds, every possible odd, with no resources, no allies, no army, surrounded, about to be thrown into the sea. A traumatized country. It's enough to make you a Zionist. It's enough to make you a Zionist. And don't, I just can't think of any other event like that. I just can't. Um, just I'll end with a little story. Please. So I focus this book now um, on one day, on May 14th, 1948. And 
this is a day where you know Jewish leaders debated whether to declare their state. There wasn't. There actually wasn't. A, there was a majority in the Zionist executive whether to declare because everyone was scared. Everyone thought they were going to be massacred. There were six Arab armies paused to attack the country. Jerusalem was under siege. Gush Etzion had just fallen. The, the defenders of Gush Etzion had just been massacred. Right. Massacred. Right. And that was a harbinger of what was going to come. The army said they had bullets enough to fight for seven days. And there were 600,000 Jews in this country, about a little less than the population of Boston. They couldn't agree on the name of the country. They couldn't agree on the, on the text of the Declaration of Independence. They didn't know where the United States was going to recognize the country. The Declaration of Independence ceremony was held in the Tel Aviv Art Museum because it was the, it was the building that had the thickest wall. Hmm. Believe it? I didn't know that. So we was just down in, I was just down in Stable Care, where, which is the, the housing of the, uh, the Ben-Gurion Archives. Last week, and they showed me the entry for May 14th, 1948. Ben-Gurion was an obsessive diarist. He'd be writing his diary about your conversation while you were having that conversation with him. Amazing. And, uh, and the entry for May 14th, 1948 is about a page and a half. And it opens up with a discussion about Shkut Sesion. talks a little about Jerusalem. It talks about the battle for Kfar Saba. It talks about ammunition low in the Alexandrioni Brigade. It goes on and on and on. The penultimate line in this entry says, Today I declare the independence of the Jewish state. And the next line after that says, The people about in Israel are out dancing in the street, and I'm here cowering in the dark. Carrying the responsibility of what comes next. Tell me that that's not one of the one of the most extraordinary stories ever. You know, um, I'm getting goosebumps. I guess it is. You, you read that and your jaw falls open. Yeah, you know, the jaw falls open. That's a story. Imagine there was a gigantic billboard that millions and millions of Jews would read. What message would you put on that billboard? Okay, I would say the billboard would be divided in half. On one half, you'd show a Jew living in a shtetl in the Pale of Settlement, circa 1790. Uh, in the mud, in the filth, with Cossacks bearing down on him. It would be in gray, mostly. And the other half of the billboard would show, let's say, Tel Aviv. Let's say the high-tech zone of Herzliya. Or a collage of pictures of showing Israeli soldiers, uh, men and women on tanks, beaches, Jerusalem, the Kotel, all there. And the heading on this billboard would be, what would he? What would he have done to have been here? What would he have done to 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 be here? To be here, yeah, on the beach in Tel Aviv. Whatever in in, in this. It's interesting. I makes I would I think I would put on there. Where do you see yourself? Yeah. Which side of the line are you on? So okay, fine. We're well, not I talking. I don't about think the Jew. I don't think the American Jew is going to see himself on either side of that line. He's not going to see him as the as, as the Jew in the shtetl. Again, as you said, it's the most successful, best educated, affluent uh, Jewish community in history. The vast majority of American Jews do not even think of themselves as living in the diaspora. The United States is not diaspora. Many of them take offense at the notion that they are diasporic Jews. They do not see themselves in that way. How do they define themselves? They see themselves as American Jews. And America is not the diaspora. So then what is it? It is, it's the golden of Medina. It's, it's another, it's an alternative promised land. Very crucial to understand is many Israelis do not understand what I just said. A diaspora is not uh, an appropriate adjective. I can understand exile. They do not see themselves in exile. Exile I can understand because that's forced on a person. But diaspora, it means tfusot. You're spread out around the world. They don't feel themselves in that way. They, they actually take offense at it. That sounds like I German never, Jews. I never referred to diaspora Jews as American Jews as diaspora Jews. You lose half your audience. That's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. It's part of the code. And uh, you, have con- you have competing utopias. Uh, Jewish utopias. The American Jewish utopia of the Israeli Jewish utopia. <laughs> uh, 
And it's difficult to reconcile the two. Very difficult. So yeah, I don't think they see themselves living in either place. But I think they have to see what I, what, I, what the bill, my billboard is, is urging American Jews to do is to see themselves as part of an historic continuum and see that, that uh, Jewish peoplehood is not just horizontal, it's vertical. And that uh, it reaches back. And see yourself as a Jew living at a certain time in history. And not just any time in history. It is a utterly unique time in Israeli history where this country exists. And it's not like any other country. It is, by any objective global criteria, one of the most successful countries known. In one of the most unhospitable environments also known. And to appreciate that, that's what the, the billboard, my billboard would be about. Thank you very much, Mike. My I really appreciate it. I'm forward to Enjoy the book. the book. I really am. I, you don't know. I'm into this. Michael Lauren is the former Israeli ambassador to the United States, a New York Times bestselling author. Amongst his bestselling books are Six Days of War, June 1967, and the Making of the Modern Middle East, Power, Faith, and Fantasy America in the Middle East, 1776 to the Present, and Ally, My Journey Across the American-Israeli Divide. Thank you for listening, my friends, and I look forward to bringing you more interesting guests in the upcoming episodes. Thank you.